Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk about one of the pavilions at Epcot that was known as the Living Seas. Now today you may know it as the Seas with Nemo and Friends, but its original concept goes back to the original concepts for all of Epcot. As far back as 1978, when they were talking about the prospectus for Epcot, they knew that they wanted to have some sort of a pavilion dedicated to the seas. Now, the oceans make up 70% of the, the, the earth, so it was important to understand the seas and how they relate to the earth as a part of what Epcot was. Now, remember that Epcot was always larger than life. It you know, had this spectacular nature to it. It was, it was designed to uh, inform, inspire, educate, and leave guests caring just a little bit more about real life uh, and the wonders around them. And if you think about sort of this edutainment, this educated education entertainment that Disney was doing, this fit right into that thematically. They wanted to have something that really talked about the seas, made it entertaining for you, but made you care just a little bit more about the ocean and the world around us. So this idea was sitting on the, uh, the, the, the block for a period of time when they first started coming up with Epcot. They had actually built a model for what they wanted it to be done concept drawings and started thinking about it when they first started coming up with the ideas for Epcot. So it was amazing that they had that for as long as they did. Now, when we look at the prospectus in 1978, the Seas Pavilion was uh, dedicated to the ocean. The concept was to have something where the guests could sail through moments of peril and triumph with the great explorers who charted the seas for civilization. In another adventure, Poseidon, the Sea Lord, would challenge visitors to journey the ocean depths. From the continental shelf to the Great Coral Reef, finally arriving at Sea Base Alpha, an authentic ocean environment with live marine life and an underwater restaurant and a showcase of oceanographic exhibits and displays. Pretty remarkable when you stop and think about it. That was the plan. Now, the problem was always about money. Disney had this great idea for something they wanted to do, but this was going to be an immersive, very expensive dark ride to build. If you want to have a giant aquarium and you want to have all these rides and shows around it, it's going to be expensive to build it, maintain it, and keep it going. So Disney needed a sponsor. As they did with many things around that same time, they needed sponsorship. But it's hard to find a sponsor who's willing to take on something that big, considering the fact that it's about the seas. Who can you get? A cruise line? Some other major industry? No, they didn't have anybody in mind. They talked to a lot of different companies, but nobody wanted to foot the bill for something quite like this. So Disney put it on the shelf, and when Epcot opened in 1982, the Living Seas was but a dream. Now, finally, in about 1983 or so, United Technologies stepped forward and agreed to fund a pavilion called the Seas. Now, they had to scale it back a little bit, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what it was and then what it, what it became, and kind of give you some context around what changed. Now, the thing was, when we, started, when we start looking at it, this pavilion was just a remarkable idea. 
and it was really complicated to kind of think up all the things they wanted to do. In the original drawings, the idea was to put the Living Seas Pavilion where the Land Pavilion is today because they wanted you to be able to come out of Communicore and come, in, come out of Future World and walk over and see the seas right away. Since the seas were the greatest part of our Earth, you should be stepping into the oceans right away when you, when you step out. Then the Land Pavilion would have been further over. But because they didn't have the money to build the seas, and because they needed to have something that was going to be a, a focal point there, they decided to switch places and the Land Pavilion moved over because they were building that first. So they basically switched. But that's okay because the C's were still on the drawing board and they were going to come later. In principle, guests would enter the pavilion through a swirling, eroded, carved grotto and step into a semicircle, wrapped around, wrap around theater, where a storm would be gradually building around them. Wind, mist, and rolling thunder would shake the theater until all guests were seated. Then with a flash of lightning, the ancient gods of the seas, Poseidon, would appear calming the storm with a flick of his wrist and introducing guests to some of the brave adventurers who'd conquered the oceans. With Poseidon's blessing, guests would be invited to explore the sea themselves, the true cradle of life on Earth. Now, in this pre-show, they actually had an auditorium. It was actually two back-to-back -back auditoriums that would rotate so they could constantly be loading. So the idea was you would put, your people, put people in there and you would have a holding area outside. And as soon as that theater was full, part of that shaking and getting ready would be the theater rotating so the other theater could open up. And that way you could always be loading and unloading. You didn't have to wait for the theater to go all the time. It was very clever. Kind of like the, uh, if you think about it, it's kind of like the carousel of progress where you're always loading at one point and that way you're, you don't have to worry about uh, always loading and unloading the theater. Now the entire underwater kingdom that reigned over was reigned over by Poseidon with a winding watery path through, uh, through his paradise. Guests would step out of the theater seats and journey deeper into the ocean, leading to the undersea load area of, the, of an Omnimover dark ride. Sitting in the Omnimovers disguised as glass bubbles, guests would be whisked away through an elaborate and oversized dark ride through an ocean set around the perimeter of the building. And as you left that end of the dark ride, you would then enter a five million gallon aquarium where you would then be able to experience all that the oceans have to offer. So as you would wind your way around the outside of the building, then you would finally find a, basically a tunnel that would go inside into the aquarium and you would be inside the aquarium looking up at the seas around you and would head to Sea Base Alpha, which was in the middle of the aquarium. The idea was to have uh, the aquarium, uh, the Sea Base Alpha be this domed piece within the aquarium so you could actually look up and see all the fish around you. So if we stop and consider this for a moment, what you had was this early part where you were learning about the adventurers, the people among the seas. They had an idea for taking you on an on a early sea voyage where you would be above water and going around and being able to experience what it was like to go out on the ocean in the early days. You know, you think about explorers before the 1700s or so, there were a few who circumnavigated the globe or took long distance trips and were able to successfully return, but there were many more who did not. Until about the 1700s when people were able to more successfully uh, go back and forth among the seas, it took a long time to figure out how to, how to manage the seas. So you could learn something about the whole uh, nature of, of sailing on the seas. And also they would tell you some of the stories of uh, pirates and some of the stories of adventures and some of the mythological things that might have happened along the way when you talk about the seas that way. So it all kind of came together in a story that you could tell. And this is why it's so amazing. This is why the Living Seas was such a grand pavilion in what they had in mind. But unfortunately, 
due to the uh, budget cuts, budget constraints, other things because they had a, a sponsor paying for it who wasn't sure what the value was and paying for something on the scale of the seas, they had to kind of scale back their ideas a little bit. Now, that's not to say they did anything bad. Um, what they came up with was still pretty darn remarkable and pretty amazing with the way that they uh, were able to figure it out. So you had the this idea for a uh, pavilion that was going to be the seas, and you were still going to have a giant tank of... So you wound up having this idea that you were still going to have the largest aquarium in the world. At that point in time, it was. It wasn't until just maybe 15 years or so ago when the Georgia Aquarium built something bigger. But this aquarium was going to be the largest aquarium in the world. And that was one of the remarkable parts about it. Regardless of whatever other things it had, you're building this giant aquarium that people could go into and see the, and see the world around them. In all, they decided to build a scale back, if you will, version of the aquarium that would be 5.7 million gallons of water inside it. That's an enormous aquarium. It was about 500 feet in diameter and about 27 feet deep. That's a giant aquarium. And like I said, it, only, it was only eclipsed by the Georgia Aquarium in the last two decades. So for, in, for the first 20 years it was open, it was the largest aquarium in the world. Now, from, from a size perspective, that 500 feet in diameter is bigger than Spaceship Earth. So you could take this, the diameter of Spaceship Earth and basically put it in the middle and there'd still be room on any side. Think about how big that is. Now, it's not as tall as Spaceship Earth, of course, because Spaceship Earth is basically a sphere, but it is that size. And that was a remarkable thing. No one had ever done anything like this, uh, built something quite that size. So it took 22 months to build, and uh, it, it cost, cost roughly around $90 million in those dollars from 1982 or so. And it opened on January 15, 1986. So it was about four years, roughly, after the park opened. And that was the amazing thing, just how much it, how long it took to build it and to put something in there. Now, Disney came up with this idea. Since they couldn't quite create, create the ride they wanted to, they still wanted to have something called Sea Base Alpha, where you would go in and you would be a part of the experience of being under seas with all the sea creatures that are there. But how to get you there? So they came up with this idea of, how about if we have you come in through a grotto, similar to what they had in mind, you would go into a theater, you would sit in the theater for a couple of minutes and you would learn something about the earth and the oceans, and then after that was over, you would descend to the ocean floor. Wow, that's an interesting idea. And you would take something called a hydrolator that would take you down below the ocean floor so you could look in at the ocean. Now I have to admit, the first time I went into this attraction, you know, I was almost um, 20 years old when it opened. And I walked in and I went, this is really intriguing. It feels like you're going beneath the earth. And they did enough to make you believe it, at least on the surface. And as soon as you started to peel it back a little bit and think about it, it didn't make sense. But it was an intriguing idea that you could actually go in underwater and actually experience this. So here you are in Orlando and you go into this hydrolator and you go down. Perhaps you're going down through the limestone and you're going to a deeper ocean, maybe. You know, for a moment, you suspend your disbelief and you think maybe they're actually telling you the truth. You know that they're not, but it feels like they are. So this hydrolator was really something. It would be this, um, essentially it looked like an elevator, but it had rocks on the, on the inside and it had water flowing through. So it gave the illusion of it was going down. They'd have the bubbles flowing through and they'd give the motion to it. So it would feel like you were actually going down under the water. And they'd tell you you were going back down past sea level. You were going down past you know 100 meters, whatever it was. And then you'd go to sea base alpha. So 
you had this moment where you just hesitated and you said, wait, is that right? Of course it wasn't, but it was really kind of a clever idea the way they take you down and make you feel like you were going underwater. So that's the way they did it. And I thought that was really, really cool. So you'd watch the movie, take the hydrolator, then you'd enter what was called a sea cab. And the sea cab went through this tunnel inside of the aquarium that had windows on all three sides, uh, above and on both sides uh, as you were moving forward, and would take you along into sea base alpha. And it was really pretty neat because you got a chance to experience the aquarium firsthand as soon as you came out of the theater. And the idea was to immerse you in it, to make you think that you were going into something really interesting. Now, within the actual part of the aquarium where you were in sea base alpha, you actually got to see some, some kind of intriguing things. You could go off and wander up and look at the animals and the animals and the sea creatures and the other things that were in the tanks and experience them that way. They had a manatee rescue zone where you could go and watch them taking care of manatees and uh, helping them out. There were often divers in the tank who would be down there and doing cleaning or feeding the fish or anything else. There were sharks in the tank. There were turtles in the tank. There were all kinds of fish in the tank. At that many gallons, you had a lot of things going on. Of course, there was some things that were uh, man-made, and there were some actual coral reefs that were being built over time by some of the creatures that were in there. Really cool. Really amazing. And there was the joy of scientific discovery, too, because they'd tell you about things, and they had people there to talk about things, and they'd give you ex uh, experiences and let you, let you understand some things. They had uh, displays set up so you could understand what underwater uh, logistics were like, that you had to have these submersible vehicles that you would go around and you would uh, be moving around it with, or in, in some cases. You had these giant, um, almost spacesuit-looking things that were actually for going under the ocean because of the pressures of the ocean. You would be under the ocean and uh, actually dealing with you know, how you move around. You could step inside them. You could check them out. There were live lectures, live demos, lots of things happening all over the place. You could literally spend hours there and only scratch the surface. It was pretty amazing. And if you really were into it, you could be a diver. And you, if you were a certified scuba diver, you could go into the tank and spend a couple of hours diving around. Pretty remarkable. Very calm, very easy to scuba dive in, but really pretty neat that they were able to do that and take people out there. It's, it's very, very cool. So that was the nature of what the living seas were. And I have to say that I was always fascinated by the way that they set it up because it felt like you were actually in some sort of oceanographic institute and you were learning something about the oceans. Now, because the ride itself was just that one thing, that one track that went in, it sort of lost that feeling, that immersive feeling of something grabbing you and making you want to stay in the pavilion. Stay for a while, but after a while you kind of go, yeah, okay, I want to go off and ride a ride. I want to go do something interesting. And that's what was missing there was that extra piece. Now, they still talked about bringing that back at some point, but it never happened. They kept uh, bringing it up and it would just kind of like, you know, die off at some point. Yeah, we're not, we'll get to that eventually, maybe. And then it never went anywhere. So that's the way it existed for almost 20 years. And it was pretty neat. I have to say it was always fun uh, to be in there. You, when you were ready to leave, you would use the hydrolator to go back up to the surface because they had to keep the illusion alive. And then you would exit out into the park again. So it was kind of clever the way they set it up. So I'd like to take you back now to hear the movie and the, the sea cab ride uh, when it first opened. And this is what it sounded like.
Try to imagine, just for a moment, that somewhere in the endless reaches of the universe, on the outer edge of a galaxy of a hundred thousand million suns, deep within a cluster of slowly forming planets, a small sphere of just the right size lies just the right distance from its mother star, cooling in the coldness of space. Try to imagine. Now that sphere's creation continues, as countless volcanoes spew clouds of gas and steam into the sky for melted mineral formations. And then that cloud-covered planet waits. And waits. And waits until finally those clouds of gas and steam condense and rain upon that planet. Rain upon that planet Earth. And they rain and rain and rain. The deluge. deluge of such magnitude that the world's greatest waterfalls flowing together for more than a million years would only just begin to approach its results. For when it finally stopped, the seas had been born. Seas that would make this planet unlike any other within the realm of our knowledge. For it was there, sheltered from cosmic radiation, that the means to support life on Earth was able to emerge. Tiny single-celled plants, phytoplankton, that capture the energy of the sun and convert it into that most basic of life-sustaining elements, oxygen, creating more than half the Earth's supply. But more than that, those same seas interact with that same solar energy and the Earth's rotation to serve as the engine that drives all the world's weather. Yet these phenomena occur in only the first few hundred feet of seas that average greater than two miles in depth. And it is there in those depths, in an endless night, darker than the darkest night on land, that we are just now beginning to explore an amazing world. 
There, amid raging underwater storms and fiery underwater volcanoes, mountain ranges that dwarf the Himalayas and gorges four times deeper than the Grand Canyon, there, two miles deep in that darkness, an amazing world. A world where the cold sea pours deep into the mountain's warm core through immense cracks in its surface and then rises back to the ocean floor as a superheated mineral-laden fluid emitting what to us would be lethal concentrations of poisonous chemicals. Yet, incredibly, around these strange vents, exotic life forms flourish. Life forms that have astonished biologists by finding the means for their survival, not in photosynthesis and the sun, but in the chemicals of the earth itself. Chemosynthesis, an ecosystem like none other on earth. Until now, scientifically inconceivable. Yet there, nevertheless, deep beneath the sea, waiting for our discovery. Waiting in a world where we've spent less time than on the surface of the moon. A world we've only just begun to explore with tools we've only just begun to imagine. Tools with which we'll go where no one has gone before. searching these seas for the knowledge they conceal and the resources they hold, for answers to our past and keys to our future. What kind of future will it be? Try to imagine, just for a moment, a future of amazing technological creativity. A future of incredible adventure and discovery. A future of remarkable awareness and understanding. Try to imagine. For we welcome you now to take the first steps into that future. We welcome you to the living seas. We welcome you to Seabase Alpha. Seabase Alpha to surface control. All hydrolators pressurized. Prepare for boarding. 10-4 Seabase. Hydrolators now boarding for departure to visitor center at sub-level 5. Departure to visitor center at sub-level 5. Control clear. 10-4 control. Seabase Alpha clear. Service control, this is guest vehicle staging area number one. GBSA number one, go ahead please. Passengers from hydrolator number two, ready for departure to sea base Alpha Visitor Center. All conditions read, go for departure. Contact base on 027 for arrival sequence. Roger, GBSA. Ladies and gentlemen, please choose small children by the hand, and watch your step as you move, and please move all the way into 
the high limit to allow room for
please collect your belongings and step out to your right. The moving platform is traveling at the same speed as your vehicle. Now for me, the voice of the woman who narrates the film is one of the most enduring and memorable things about the actual attraction. Try to imagine you know, the deluge. And uh, that was actually voiced by Hope Alexander Willis, who had played in a bunch of different parts in a number of different series. Nothing of real note, though I know, I don't mean to undersell it, she did some things, but nothing that was really truly Disney or that stand, stand out. Um, she did a lot of different things in her career. But really amazing, because that is the thing that I remember her best for. Uh, when I was going through her filmography, I'm like, hmm, that's the one that really stands out among everything. And it's amazing, because, you know, very memorable that way. Now, I couldn't find who the voice was that did the uh, C-Cab narrator, um, though I suspect it's out there somewhere. Uh, I just wasn't able to find it, wasn't able to track that down. But still pretty amazing the way that all came together in some way. Now, as you may remember, I have a copy of the Field Guide to Epcot, and uh, I like to reflect back on some of the things that they had in there where they talked about these attractions. And I've talked about it for the other attractions that were built. Um, this one is for the Living Seas. Some of the ocean notions that they put in there. The ocean covers three quarters of the Earth's surface. The sea bottom uh, boasts huge gorges four times deeper than the Grand Canyon. There is more gold in seawater than in all of the world's gold mines. Finny facts. During the deep dives, dolphins can hold their breath up to 10 minutes. Manatees have been in existence for millions of years. Fossils have been found in Florida, which date back 45 million years. Fish are one of the few animals that will continually grow throughout their lives. And sharks have teeth all over their bodies. Their scales are actually modified teeth. Now, as far as the technology the quiz that they had here, always funny. Uh, since it was sponsored by Universal Technologies, a technology quiz makes sense. Name the manatee's closest living relative. And the answer is the elephant. How many gallons of water does the living seas contain? Uh, and it, the answer they give is approximately 6 million gallons, making it the world's sixth largest ocean. It is the largest man-made saltwater environment in the world. What does the acronym SCUBA stand for? Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. What is the temperature of the pavilion's ocean? The temperature is kept between 74 and 78 degrees Fahrenheit. What types of food are fed to the animals in the living seas? The dolphins dine on herring and capelin. The West Indian manatees eat lettuce, carrots, oats, sprouts, and fruits. The sharks, the sharks are fed mackerel. The larger uh, reef fish are fed shrimp. The medium-sized fish are fed krill, which are smaller shrimp. And the tiniest reef inhabitants are fed uh, extra small brine, shrimp, uh, and flaked food. The parrotfish eat a special concoction made of fish chow and uh, dental plaster to keep their beaks sharp since they cannot eat artificial reef, the artificial reef that's there. Lettuce is provided daily for the plant eaters. Give four characteristics of the dolphins which classify them as mammals. They're warm-blooded, they have hair follicles, breathe, and have memory glands. Discuss the effects of the dynamic discuss the effects and dynamics of waves using the wave tank in Seabase Alpha. The wave tank demonstrates how waves form and how wave actions affect the ocean floor and beach erosion. A few attractions about the, uh, a, a few attraction facts. The main environment of the Living Seas Pavilion measures 203 feet in diameter by 27 feet deep and contains 5.7 million gallons of water. The window panels in the second level observation deck measure 8 feet by 24 feet and weigh 9,000 pounds each. They range in thickness from 6 to 8 inches. This is the largest single casting of an acrylic ever attempted. Again, using that technology. 
There were over 70 varieties of fish and other marine animals residing in the living seas, with a total of 8,000 inhabitants. The residents of the pavilion eat nearly, nearly two tons of food each week. There's also a quote in here from James A. Garfield. I've seen the sea lashed into fury and tossed into spray, and its grandeur moves the soul of the dullest man. But I remember that it's not the billows, but the calm level of the sea from which the heights and depths are measured. Kind of interesting. Very deep thought, if you will, um, about what it means, about what the living seas are. Now, sometime after Finding Nemo came out, they decided to add some Finding Nemo aesthetics to it. So they built a Bruce the Shark that you could climb into. They had some things about uh, Finding Nemo that you could go to. There were some other interesting things that you could do, um, a little more related to the storylines there, but nothing that really you know, still felt like it was that much different. Then at some point, they, when uh, United Technologies pulled out of their sponsorship, Disney closed the sea cab part and just let you come right into the pavilion and go in. But in about 2007 or so, they decided it was time to retheme it to The Seas with Nemo and Friends. And instead of having you go in to Seabase Alpha, you would actually enter and hear the story of Finding Nemo and be able to go along and see Nemo in the tank. And they've got some clever little uses of technology where they show some of the, some of the uh, drawn characters from the movie on the tank. So it looks like they're actually in the, in the actual tank, though, of course, they're not. It's just very clever the way they set it up and they have it working that way. So it's kind of neat um, the way they did it. It's not, you know, really all that interesting, to be honest with you. It's clever, um, but, you know, I, I still prefer to be in the actual aquarium than actually doing that. They just repurposed the same track, just created clamshells that are more Omnimover vehicles, and they actually have you moving along through the, uh, through the story of part of the story of Finding Nemo. With the new song that they created, A Big Blue World, that they created for the Finding Nemo the musical, they added it into uh, the ride here too, which was kind of clever. They just put it in and it's you know, seamlessly put in and it feels like it's part of, the, part of the movie, even though it's really not. So you go along and you do that, and then the, the things that they do at the end in Seabase Alpha are a little different, but similar. Uh, there's some things that are familiar and some that are new, but again, they're trying to teach you about sea exploration. And then when you're done, you just walk right out of the building. The hydrolators are long gone. So, you know, you kind of miss those, but it's still pretty neat the way they, they've set it up. And today, you go through a longer queue because they took away the pre-show movie, and you walk your way, wind your way into where the uh, load is for the vehicle, and you get into the vehicle and you ride off um, into, the, uh, into the Finding Nemo ride. And here's what that sounds like. So it's, it's interesting. It's kind of compelling, but the original story of what they had in mind for the whole attraction was really the most fascinating part about it. They had this grand idea for something that was really different and unique, and it was kind of interesting the way they set it up. It's just unfortunate that it never came to be exactly what they wanted it to be.
And in one of the exhibit areas that used to exist, they changed it over to something called Turtle Talk with Crush. Now, this is a very clever attraction, an interactive experience, if you will. They have a movie screen up at the front, and Crush the Turtle from the Finding Nemo show comes out and starts talking to you. And it's very clever because there's an off-screen actor who's interacting with the guests that are in the theater and doing the voice and the animations match up with what his voice is doing. So it's very clever that you always think that he's talking to you and he is in a way, but he's a, he's a computer generated image that's interacting with you because there's an actor behind it. It's the same technology that he used for uh, the Monsters Inc. laugh floor, and it's very, very convincing and very clever. And while we're spending a few minutes on, though the show lasts about 10 or 15 minutes and it's mainly for kids, I still like to go into it once in a while because it's kind of a fun place to just kind of see the technology evolving in a way. Humans in the human tank. Hey, how you dudes doing in there today? Yeah. Awesome, got some big dudes on the benches. Hey, big dudes, give me some fin. Excellent, caught some little dudes down. Sub that Grace, want to say hi to some of these dudes? Let me start this dude over here short sleeve. Looks like a black shell, blue lid on the noggin with the swim goggles. What's your name, dude? Hi. What is your name? Brayden, sweet, how you doing, Brayden? <laughs> okay, another way to talk turtle. Anytime a sea turtle says you so totally rock, you're supposed to reply, dudes. Let's try it all together. You so totally rock. Dudes. Yeah. There you go, dudes. Now you're all talking like turtle. The fish tank inside the living seas is enormous. But the site itself, the plot of land that it's on, is really an amazing plot of land, if you think about it. It's about four and a quarter acres that the entire pavilion sits on, and probably half of that or so is the tank itself. It's really a remarkably sized building, and the, the uh, footprint is just amazingly big. And when you think about Epcot on the whole, it just you realize just how big it is. It's like roughly twice the size of the Magic Kingdom in terms of its overall uh, footprint. So it's just a remarkable, remarkable thing how big the Living Seas is. Now, the Living Seas has two other amenities in it. One is that it has the uh, restaurant that you can go and you can eat in. And I always found it funny to be able to eat in a restaurant where you're looking at the fish tank because you're in a seafood restaurant and you're kind of looking at the fish, though it's not exactly the same fish, but you are looking at the, the kinds of fish you're eating. It's kind of a taunting thing you're doing almost. And the other thing is there is a VIP lounge, like all of the other pavilions in World Showcase and the uh, Future World. Every pavilion pretty much has some sort of a VIP lounge for the sponsor to be able to use at their discretion, whatever they'd like to do with it. Now, as sponsorship goes away, these are used for other events. And occasionally, even when the sponsorship was there, they were used for other events. So there are opportunities to go there for various reasons. If you happen to be with some group that rents it out for the day, or there's some activity that Disney is running, they may let you go into it. So it's kind of an interesting thing. It's just one more little nuance to it, one more little piece to the puzzle of what is the Living Seas. Oh, to have seen what they had in mind and what they could have actually built had they had the money and the, the time to actually build it. It probably would have been truly remarkable. The Poseidon thing sounds really cool where you're on an interactive adventure and you're going through and you're learning about the ocean floors and going deeper and going higher and seeing how the continental shelf looks and all of those things would have been very, very cool. And I, I really wonder what that would have been like. Then the water part of the ride where you would have been on the, on the ocean, where you would have been going along, it sounds like it would have been really neat. One of the things that captivated me was uh, in the... 
uh, ride that was the, um, the Maelstrom that they built a few years after this. They actually built something that was, uh, you went off and you were in the North Sea at some point. And it was really cool and very clever the way they set it up because you kind of felt like you were out in the ocean. And I can only imagine that they would have used similar ideas and concepts to put you in the ocean going along and seeing different things uh, over time and you know experiencing things. So it might have been really neat. And it's just a remarkable thing. And I'm really glad that Disney took the time to give the seas enough attention, though unfortunately it's maybe not the proper attention. It's sort of missing something. Like I said, it doesn't have that compelling feel to it. It's not like you want to spend a lot of time there doing anything. And there's not, without the marquee attraction that they originally had in mind, you're going in and you're seeing the ocean, which is interesting but it's lacking sort of the context about why it's interesting and what they, you know, the story they can tell you and to edu edutain you into learning something about the oceans. Yeah, you can learn something just by walking around it and seeing things. It's really cool. And you talk to some of the cast members that are there and some of the other people that are working there. And it's uh, really pretty neat. Now, one other thing I'm going to leave you with is that um, Dr. Robert Ballard, he's the, uh, the person who found the Titanic, Titanic. Uh, while he was doing some other missions for the U.S. Navy, because he had his mission was funded by the U.S. government primarily, uh, he found the Titanic. He had some involvement. He had a lot of uh, play because he understood what the oceans were all about, and you know how difficult it is, and how big they are, how vast they are. Think about how long it took him to find the Titanic, and he found it with just a few days remaining. He tells this story about his finding uh, finding the Titanic, and in doing so, Disney recruited him to help tell the story of what undersea adventure is like. So you see some of the elements that are there kind of reflect his vision of what the oceans are like. Now again, without the comprehensive storyline, it's missing something, but it does come together with a couple of pieces. Walt Disney nearly always had an underlying purpose, and that was to make us more aware of the world around us. And that's what Epcot and the Living Seas Pavilion is all about six and a half million gallons of water enough water to give everyone watching this program a 10 ounce drink and still have enough left over to quench the thirst of albany new york six and a half million gallons of water containing all the elements required for the life cycle of a living coral reef but what makes this even more special is that people from all over the world will be able to witness life in the reef as it is and has been for millions of years. Such is the care and loving detail that has gone into this exhibit. In Walt Disney's original vision of Epcot, the Living Seas was planned to open as part of the first phase in 1982. But as the Imagineers began the initial planning, they soon realized it was going to require a great deal more research and development than any other pavilion in the center. For one thing, it would be the first Disney attraction that would use live animals rather than the famous audio-animatronic creatures found at other exhibits. The Disney planners believed wholeheartedly in the dignity of animals and were determined to avoid their exploitation. In fact, the care and training of the animals that would be the living part of the Living Seas would begin nearly a year to the day before it would open at the Animal Holding Center off the Florida Keys. Finally. This exhibit would have a scientific board of advisors who would actively participate in research once the pavilion was completed. And so while the rest of Epcot rose on schedule and opened to the public on October 1st, 1982, the Living Seas remained a dream until Disney and United Technologies joined forces to make this dream a reality. So the imagination responsible for the Living Seas Pavilion 
stems from the same source that gave the world such imaginative motion pictures as Snow White, Fantasia, Mary Poppins, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. One of the things that intrigues me in the world today is that we kind of dispose of science. We don't think of it as anything important. Scientific accomplishment is one of those amazing things that what makes us stands out, stand out as humans because we take these things and we accomplish something and we're able to show how we do something different. And I think that's a remarkable thing and you should never dismiss scientific accomplishment or achievement. And politicizing science is kind of strange because scientists don't typically do that among themselves. Sure, sometimes they try to get ahead or they curry favor, but that's not generally what they're into it for. They're in it for the reasons of trying to accomplish something and make something better. So as we think about the virus that's going around, and this virus itself, this COVID-19, is highly transmissible. Uh, that means that basically just by breathing, you can get it. Someone has it, they breathe out, and depending on how hard they breathe is how many spores and how far out they go. So if you're in a location that's close to someone else and they're breathing, there's a chance that you will breathe it in. You will breathe in some of those spores and then you have it too. Now, whether you get sick or not, that's still debatable. Some people do, some people don't but you still may have it and you may carry it to the next person and so on. So going to places where you expose yourself to a lot of things without wearing a mask is kind of uh, challenging because there's the great potential that you may get it. So what I wanted to kind of express to everyone is understand what the basics are and you know, kind of educate yourself and wear a mask. I think it's important to understand that you know, just by breathing, there's the potential you're spreading this virus or you could catch it from someone else. So it's important to always wear a mask when you're out. Look, the case rates are going up around the, the nation and around the world, especially as we head into wintertime. So it's important to arm yourself with some information and some facts so that you know that you should be wearing a mask. Now, I use my example here, Disney World. As I mentioned in my last podcast, Disney World has not had a confirmed outbreak related to cast members or guests uh, since they reopened. And there's a reason for that. And the biggest reason is they're really pushing the 100% mask mandate. You have to wear a mask while you're in the theme park. And they're also keeping people as much socially distanced as they can, spending more time outside, limiting the queues and the involvement there. All of those things come together to provide a relatively safe experience for people to go into the theme parks. Disney also learned a lot along the way because they had the NBA bubble happening there and they were studying what was happening with the people. Now, you can't expect that the bubble is going to work 100% outside of the NBA and what they were doing for the basketball league. But certainly some of the things that they learned about the virus and the fact that they were using technology to help them will help to understand it, or it probably already is helping them to understand how to prevent the spread of the virus. So Disney is doing a masterful job of doing that. They're putting on a masterclass right now. We should all be paying attention to what they're doing and how they're doing it because we can learn a lot. And we shouldn't be so dismissive of masks or make them political or anything else because, you know, that's what's really stopping the spread at Disney World. Now, as you look around and you see other industries, you have the airline industry that hasn't had an outbreak confirmed to them. Uh, you have had travelers who have had it, who have, who have spread the virus, but the airlines themselves, airlines themselves have not been in the middle of it. You look at the TV and movie industry and they've restarted some of their 
productions and people wear masks that are not on screen. They rigorously test everyone that's off that's on screen and they take care of, you know, things to make sure that they're keeping it under control and relatively safe. So it's very important that you're doing these things. And then I was reading a story about a school district that does rigorous contact tracing. And so they had a couple of uh, outbreaks. They, they have the mask mandate in their schools. Everyone has to wear, wear the mask and they kind of spread them out through the classrooms and whatever else they can do. And they've had some outbreaks, but they were doing contact tracing and they learned that it wasn't because of the classroom. It was because of other activities, sports, extracurriculars, other things where people weren't wearing a mask, but were around each other in larger numbers. They were spreading it there. So we learn something, right? We, we actually take something away from it. And the message is, we can conquer this virus in different ways. Yeah, down the road, there is the uh, vaccine that will be available. Whether that's available widely this year, next year, middle of next year, we don't know. There's, you know, that everybody wants it to come and be a panacea and be an immediate thing, but it's gonna take months to get it distributed and out there. And most of these vaccines that they're talking about take two doses that have to be spread out over time. So you don't exactly get this immediate impact of you know, suddenly being uh, virus-free. And they believe that you would still be a carrier even if you've been vaccinated. So you could get someone else sick. You could be a carrier, you won't get sick yourself, but you could actually uh, get someone else sick. So it's kind of important to understand that and realize it as you think about it. So that's, that's what I wanted to remind you about today. Just to educate yourself, to be smart, and to do smart things. Make good choices, right? Don't just go out there and go, eh, whatever, I'm going to go at it. It's not about you, it's about society. Society is asking for something very simple, wear a mask. That's an easy thing to do. Just when you're in public, you don't have to wear it when you're around your family. But be smart about who you encounter and the things you do and some of the, some of the uh, interactions you have to limit the amount of time you have face-to-face -face exposure. And hopefully, you won't get sick and you won't carry it to someone else. So that's it. That's my one little spark for you today. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company.